This morning we come to what I believe will be our last sermon in the subject of the providence of God. It's not been my intention to cover every aspect of that subject, but I've wanted to take up aspects of the subject that especially I think would be of help unto us in these days that we're going through as a church and as a nation. And uh, before we begin to address this subject once again, let's uh, read together from Psalm 91. We read from this psalm, the entirety of the psalm, uh, last week in our regular scripture reading. I just want to read the first seven verses in which we have a record of the providential protection of God for his people. Psalm 91, beginning with verse 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Certainly David man of war, this is the author of this particular psalm, knew what it was like to have thousands die all around him, and yet to have God wonderfully protect him in an evil day. Before we take up this subject, let's now take our, our concerns to the Lord for pleading for his help once again. Father, we thank you and bless you for these precious expressions we find in your word that encourage us in times of trouble and times of danger. And we pray that you would be pleased even now to cause our hearts to rejoice in what you have done and what you do do for us, your people. We love you, O Lord. We love you because of the way you've forgiven our sins, the way you have caused us to be born again. But we also love you for the way you protect us and guide us and help us day by day. We pray, Lord, that you'd be pleased to draw our hearts out unto you in these days and even now. Speak to us through your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The history of the beginning of America is full of instances that are remarkable evidences of the providence of God. And perhaps there was no one who was more conscious of this providence than our first president. Even before he began his command of the ragtag army that fought for our dependence, independence, God's protecting power so surrounded George Washington that he could not help seeing and recognizing God's protective hand. While George Washington was still a young man in the spring of 1755, that's over 20 years before the Revolution, Major General Edward Braddock, the commander of chief commander-in-chief of England's North American forces, he commissioned young George to be a captain in the North American forces, which was at that time the highest position that he had authority to fill in those colonies. And one of Washington's early assignments was the capture of Fort Duquesne. It is a fort that you can now even go and see. It's near modern-day Pittsburgh, although no doubt it was built up larger since the time that we are talking about here. But this fort was first built by the French in the French-Indian War. And along the way, Captain Washington providentially became very ill. Blood dysentery, perhaps from polluted water, it infected many of the soldiers, and him included. And the dysentery had caused a certain rawness that prompted him to tie several pillows to his saddle. And little did he know that these pillows would help save his life. Washington by now was familiar with the terrain and the dangers that were imposed by the untamed wilderness that, were beyond, that was beyond the western Maryland. And he 
explained to General Braddock the perils of warfare against the Indians on their western frontier. Braddock didn't listen to him very well, but Washington had experience, and he tried to let him know what it would be like. And the English militia had never before fought a coalition of Indians and French using guerrilla warfare. They were used to marching, you see, in columns, and you know, you've seen pictures of how they would do their warfare back in those days. And General Braddock, he continued to disregard Washington's experienced counsel about warfare on the frontier. His royal troops were untrained to fight an enemy that they could not see, hiding behind rocks and trees. And suddenly, war hoops from invisible warriors that they had never heard before chilled their veins. And as the British soldiers broke ranks, into the chaos rode George Washington, perched high on his pillow-laden saddle. George somehow managed to stay in his saddle despite his weakness and the ferocity of the battle. His tall six-foot-four-inches figure was an easy mark for the hidden rifleman. And when his horse was shot out from underneath him, Washington found another horse. He remounted it, pillows and all, and he made his way back to the front. And a second time his horse was shut out from under him, and he began to search for another horse. And an unseen rifleman fired at his face, and it pierced his hat, the bullet did. Two more bullets scorched right through his hat after that. But Washington rode on, seated high on his pillows. And then hot lead pierced his uniform, but he remained untouched. Eyewitnesses were both stunned and frightened. And so Washington later on wrote this, By the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat, and two horses shot underneath me, yet escaped unheard, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. Well, some 18 years later, Shortly before the American War for Independence, Washington and his colleague, they were traveling through the Ohio Valley on a business trip. And along the way, he and his companion were visited by an Indian tribe whose aged chief informed George Washington through an interpreter that he had written a prophecy about Washington's life. I am chief ruler over my tribes. My influence extends to the waters of the Great Lakes and the far Blue Mountains. I have traveled a long and weary path that I may see the young warrior of the great battle at Fort Duquesne. It was on the day when the white men's blood mixed with the streams of our forest that I first beheld this chief. I called to my young men and said, Mark, young, tall, and daring warrior, he is not of the redcoat type. He hath an Indian's wisdom, and his warriors fight as we do. Himself alone is exposed. Quick, let your aim be certain until he dies. Our rifles were leveled, rifles which but for him knew not how to miss. T'was all in vain. A power mightier far than we shielded him from harm. He cannot die in battle. I am too old, and soon shall be gathered to the great council fire of my fathers in the land of the shades. But ere I go, there is something that bids me to speak in the voice of prophecy. Listen. The great spirit protects that man and guides his destinies. He will become the chief of nations, and a people yet unborn will hail him as a founder of a mighty empire of peace. Well, this episode, along with many other such episodes in Washington's life, many of them in the Revolutionary War, this prompted him to speak often of God's providence and to refer to his providence often in his prayers, both in public and in private. And the same divine hand, it manifested itself during the days when our country was being founded. And during recent weeks, I've been reading three books that are filled with evidence and references to the providence of God and the founding of our nation. And I've often thought it would make a good Sunday school series at some point to go over some of that history of God's dealings with our nation and how remarkable it it was that our nation came into being the way it did. 
There are many instances in which the guiding hand of providence is just absolutely unmistakable. But there are many historical developments that are difficult to interpret. And because this is difficult, oftentimes erroneous conclusions have been reached about various historical developments. And this is what's prompted me to conclude our series on the providence of God with a few sermons about the interpretation of providence in history. And so far we have covered four out of the five points that are in the outlines that have been sent to you electronically. And we noticed in our first study the relationship of providence and history, first of all. The way we interpret providence will determine the way we evaluate history. We noted the two sides of providence, the divine side and the human side, the blessing and judgment that comes in providence and also in history. And then noting this relationship, our second, in the second place, we, we noted the contrasting interpretations of providence. A striking example, you remember, of the difference between Elijah, or Elijah I mean, and Ahab in, ter- in interpreting what had happened in the three-and-a-half-year famine. In the third place, we preached a sermon on the duty of interpreting providence in history. And then in our last sermon, we addressed the whole subject of the ebb and the flow of providence in history, its ups and downs, and how we evaluate these different uh, times, the blessing and of judgment throughout the history of God's church and throughout the history of the world. But now what I want to do in the, in the fifth place in this final sermon is to give you two keys to interpreting providence and history. First place, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the first of these two keys is fidelity or faithfulness to Scripture. Do we have a key of the, in the Bible by which we can interpret the events of the world, the condition of the church in, in the world in our day? And if we have a key, where do we find it? Well, I believe we do have a key. And the great benchmark of modern church history is to be found, I believe, in the book of Acts and also in the epistles of the New Testament. And in these inspired documents, we have a golden key that unlocks all of these events of history that were happening back then and also subsequent history in the church. And so these New Testament documents, they help us evaluate what true Christianity is, what the church should be, and how we can expect that God would bless the church on the earth. And for instance, we might ask, well, what is the primary means by which the gospel is to be spread, by which the kingdom of God is to be extended? How does this take place? Was it just, did they go out and just baptize a lot of people? You know, there are certain missionaries that have gone of different stripes that have gone to South America, and the main thing they wanted to do was baptize people. Is that what the Bible teaches? Was it winning disciples by proving the superiority of Christian philosophy? Is that what they were supposed to do? Well, when we look at the New Testament, we discover that from beginning to end, the primary method of spreading the gospel is that of preaching the gospel. And so we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, in other words, like philosophers, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God, and notice what he chose, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, 
the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then on down in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what's the conclusion we have here? What did Paul, what was the method Paul used to spread the gospel? It's absolutely clear. It was one thing. It was by preaching the gospel. And the gospel was about the, the life and about the person, about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was so devoted to preaching the gospel that anything that watered down or anything that compromised that gospel, this was an anathema to him. In Galatia, you remember, there were those that were insisting that in order to win the Jews, the Gentile converts, they need to be told that they had to be circumcised if they would be saved. And so in Galatians 1, Paul declares, as we have said before, so I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what I have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now today, there are many that suppose that the church will be more effective in winning the lost if it stops being so narrow in what it preaches. In India, my father was, at those days, this was before he was acquainted with Reformed theology, but he knew the gospel. And in the mission board under which he was laboring, there were many missionaries out there in, in India that would get together at uh, certain times of the year. And it was decided by this board that in order to present a united front in gaining official recognition by the country of Nepal, that they need to join together with liberal Methodists, they were also had missionaries there, in order that together they might take the gospel to Nepal. This deeply bothered my father because these were people that didn't believe in the deity of Christ and didn't preach the virgin birth of Christ and the like. And he was the only one in the whole mission agency that stood up against us and urged them not to do this because this would be a compromise of the gospel. It's the gospel that we need to take, and it needs to be a pure gospel. And in a similar manner, those who unite together with those that insist that justification is not by faith alone, but also by the sacraments and also by good works, these are compromising the gospel. And such ones, no doubt, they argue that by uniting with people that preach the false gospel, more people are being saved. More people are coming to the Crusades. More people are walking down the aisles. But the results must not be the standard by what we, how we do gospel work. That's not the standard. The standard is God's word. What does God tell us to do? To preach the gospel, it has to be a faithful gospel. The gospel that we have received, as Paul puts it. Not results. When Moses was commanded to speak to the rock, instead, you remember, in anger, he, he struck the rock. And in his defense, perhaps we could say, well, previously he was told to strike the rock. And when they were thirsty, this was what God told him to do. And it might also be argued that when Moses struck the rock on the second occasion, instead of speaking to the rock like God told him to do, water came out, just like it did the first time. So if you're going by results, you see in both cases there was a good result. Everybody got enough water. And if this standard you see is what the results are, what he did was perfectly fine on the second occasion. But this was something that bothered the Lord, and the Lord made, made a big deal of it. It's obedience to God's word that's the standard, not the results. And Moses didn't obey. He was to speak to the rock, as God said, and not strike it. We see the same emphasis in the book of Acts. Throughout the book of Acts, what we witness as we read Luke's gospel or Luke's inspired account, I should say, it's a consistent pattern of how they spread the gospel. The apostles, they extended the kingdom of Jesus by preaching the gospel and by establishing churches. Turn with me, please, to the book of Acts in chapter 16. In this place, we have the record of the missionary endeavors of Paul and his companions in the Roman province of Galatia, which is being modern-day Turkey. And we are told that they wanted to take the gospel to the northern area of what we now call Turkey. 
to the region at that time that was called Bithynium. And we read, with respect to this proposal, this determination that they made to take the gospel up north in northern Turkey, and this is what happened, Acts 16, beginning with verse 6. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, and notice these words, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now when Paul saw this vision, come over to Macedonia, the man pleads, what did he and his companions conclude? What were they supposed to do? Did they conclude, well, he's asking for help. There's a lot of sick people over there. This must mean God wants us to go and build a hospital over there in Macedonia. Is that what they concluded? Did they conclude, well, God is calling us to go to Macedonia to perform passion plays so that people might feel and see as well as hear, you see, the impact of the death of the Lord Jesus. He wants us to perform plays. Is that what they concluded? Instead, we read verse 10. Immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. They knew the place they were to go, and they knew consistently what they were to do wherever they went. It was to preach the gospel. That was to be the method by which they spread the word. Now in the New Testament, we also consistently see what corporate agency God has chosen to spread the gospel and to nurture, to care for the, the ones that have believed. And what is the instrument that God has chosen, the corporate instrument? It's the church. In the book of Acts, we see that it was the local church that God was, had chose to send out the first missionaries. The church at Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas out. And when the gospel was received in different locations... What did the apostles do? What did Paul and his companions do? What was instituted to care for the people that had been converted? There was only one organization that God instituted for all the purposes I've just talked about, and it's the church. Everywhere they went, they planted churches. That's what missions is, is planting churches. What was... What were they, how did they set up a place for God's worship? It was the church. What was the setting for training pastors and sending out pastors? It was the church. How are widows and other needy souls to be cared for? It's the church. So dear people, this is our standard by which we are to do gospel work. That which was either exemplified or taught in Holy Scripture. This is the key, you see, Scripture is to be our guide in interpreting what takes place. And so even in history, wherever we find that the doctrine taught and the ordinances practiced and the methods that are used conform to the New Testament, we can be sure that it was done under the approval of God. But conversely, in history, when we see serious departures from the New Testament doctrine and practice, There we are seeing that which is not coming under God's blessing, or at least his unqualified blessing, but rather his disapproval and perhaps even his wrath and curse. Well, as we evaluate what's going on in our own day, this is our standard, fidelity to Scripture. And it's not what's politically expedient. It's not what seems to work. Moses struck the the, the rocket. It it gave water. it, It worked. But that's not the standard. And among Bible-believing Christians, there are always going to be differences on certain matters, you see, that take place within our country. For example, there are always going to be differences among Christians about what kind of health care system we should have in our country. Is it to be regulated by the marketplace? 
Is it to be regulated on the other hand and be totally dispensed by the, the government? Or is it something that's somewhere in between? Christians are going to differ over an issue like that. But the Bible is crystal clear about things like abortion, the definition of marriage, the duty of parents. It's not the duty you see of the state to raise our children. The duty of pastors and Christians to faithfully proclaim and to teach the, the word of God. The Bible is very plain about those issues. And those who fight against these principles, whether it's in the church or in the state, they fight against God. And even though they may seem to prosper for a while, they are under God's severe disapproval and even condemnation. Fidelity to scripture is a vital key to the interpretation of providence and history. But now I want to come to a second key for the interpretation of providence. And we're going to spend more time on the second key. And this is the distinction between the city of man and the city of God. And here I'm referring to a biblical distinction. And it was a distinction that was set forth in a grand manner by the greatest theologian of the early church, Augustine. And it was set forth in his famous work, The City of God. It's a huge work, probably the largest work written in early church history. It was written between 1413 and 1426. He worked on it for many years. And it was written in the wake of the collapse of the Roman Empire. And Augustine, he was writing to answer the charge of a number of pagan writers that it was Christianity that's responsible for the fall of the Roman Empire. In the first 10 of the City of God's 22 books, Augustine noted that Rome's misfortunes, they antedated Christianity. They were way before Christianity came along the scene. So he develops that point. And he, he said it's not the rejection of the state gods, but it was the moral impotence of paganism. This is what led to Rome's destruction. And he also argued that Rome was crumbling for a long time. And it was due to its great aim, what it was going after, what it was pursuing. This is the thing that kept on undermining the power and the strength of the Roman Empire. Communities, he said, they are defined in terms of what they love. He develops this theme very perceptively over many pages. And there are two possibilities of a community, what they are loving. The love of God and the love of the earth, or earthly things. There are two possibilities, therefore. And those who love God belong to the city of God. And their reward is eternal, he, did, he says. And those who love earthly things and earthly power, they belong to the city of man. And they are rewarded with earthly things. Here how he, here's the very, very first words that he uses in this great masterpiece. The glorious city of God is my theme in this work, which you, my dearest son Marcellinus, suggested, and which is due to you by my promise. I have undertaken its defense against those who prefer their own gods to the founder of this city, a city surpassingly glorious, whether we view it as it still lives by faith in this fleeting course of time, or as it shall dwell in the fixed stability of its eternal seat. As the plan of this works requires, and as occasion offers, we must speak also of the earthly city. So he's speaking not only the city of God, but the city of man. The earthly city, which through it is the mistress of the nations, is itself ruled by its lust of rule. It's ruled by what it loves, its power. And to this earthly city belong the enemies against whom I have to defend the city of God. Well, Augustine then goes on to proceed to argue that Rome sought temporal glory and achieved it. But since temporal glory is ephemeral, ephemeral is it's just something that's quickly here and quickly passes. Because this, is, this glory is ephemeral, that Rome also is ephemeral. ephemeral. And Rome, therefore, it, it was bound to crumble. And nowhere in this great work is there the lament you see of Augustine's contemporary, Jerome. Jerome 
was a contemporary of Augustine. And Jerome lamented that the fall of Rome, when it happened, the whole world had collapsed. Because for Augustine, he didn't see it the way Jerome saw it, because he saw that the best city had not collapsed. It was this earthly city, the city of man, that had collapsed, but not the city of God. Even as Rome was falling, Augustine saw the church building a new world on its ruins. Well, in the last 12 books, Augustine presents the origin, the history, and the destiny of these two cities. As he deals with their origin, he traces it to what each of these two cities love. And this is set out in books 11 through 14. And the supreme love of the cities, of the citizens of the city of God, their supreme love is God. Psalm 48, 1. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. Psalm 46, there is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. As the psalmist write about the city, he says, what are they writing about? What's the thing that excites them the most? It's that God is in the midst of this place. This is the one, that, this is what they love. The inhabitants of this city, they lift their eyes above. You see the ever-changing creation that surrounds them all around. And they lift above this ever-changing scene to the unchanging God. And so as Augustine puts it, there is no unchangeable good but the one true blessed God. Sin entered the universe when the creature fell away from this great good. A mutable good, mutable good, a changing good. But in the city of God, there is a renewal. We are brought back, you see, to love God and to, uh, to be devoted to him. Well, that's the origin of these two cities. And then in books 15 to 18, he describes the history of these cities. It's a great work, you see, at this part of it, in what we might call a, a biblical theology and even later on of historical theology. Well, after the fall, the human race was divided into two cities. Cain, the firstborn, he belonged to the city of man. And after him was born Abel, who belonged to the city of God. You see, he starts it right back with the first two that were born in the world. And the citizen of this world, interestingly, was born first. And after him, the stranger in this world, the citizen of the city of God, Abel, who was, as Augustine says, predestined by grace, elected by grace, by grace a stranger below, and by grace a citizen above. And in a similar fashion, there was a distinction between Abram's sons, or Abraham's sons, Ishmael, the son of Abraham's concubine Hagar, and Isaac, the son of Abraham's wife Sarah. The son of Hagar, as Paul explains, corresponds to the Jerusalem that now is, and is in bondage. That's the city of man. That's Hagar and Ishmael, her son. And then Isaac corresponds to the Jerusalem that is above and is free, as Paul explains in Galatians chapter 4. And the earthly city, it has its good in this world. And it rejoices in this earthly object of its love. And because it is contrary to the city of God, right from the very beginning, it is the enemy of the city of God. And so Cain slew Abel. And there's been an enmity ever since between these two cities. You see, he's not talking, you see, about buildings. He's talking about two spiritual entities. And significantly, it is said of Cain and not of Abel that he built this earth, an earthly city and he called it after the name of his son. And in a similar way, those that built the Tower of Babel, or Babel, they were the ancestors of those who eventually built Babylon and this Babylon, as you know in Scripture, is a picture, an emblem, all the way up through the book of Revelation of the earth and of the, the worldly powers and the worldly, and, and as Augustine observes, it is the city of man. But it's not, you see, the physical earthly cities that are built, that, that actually comprise the city of man, because you see, it's often the case that the members of the cities of, of God, they dwell in those same cities. So it's not the earthly cities, the roads and the buildings and so forth, those concrete things. 
The real difference between these two cities is that the city of God is made up of people from all over the world and they have a love for, for, for one God and one Savior. And in fact, every member of that city originally was a, a city, member of the city of man and was saved out of the city of man until he became a member or she became a member of the city of God. So this is how he describes the history of these cities. And then finally, in books 19 to 22, he sets forth the destinies of these two cities. Their end is not like their beginning. The earthly city ends in destruction, but the heavenly city is eternal. And of this city, nobody can have a perfect vision in this life. We can't perfectly understand what it's like. John depicts that glorious city by means of symbols, by means of figures of speech in the book of Revelation. But the full vision of that city awaits the last day. Now in your electronic bulletins is an artist's rendition of that city. But the glory of that city, it will far surpass anything that the mind of man can ever conceive. And this is so fundamentally because this city is comprised not so much of stones and and bricks and mortar and the like. It's not comprised even of the kind of gold that is extracted from the earth. But it's constructed first and foremost of the faith and the purity of the inhabitants of that city. And at the center of that city is the glory of God and of the Lamb, the supreme love of every inhabitant of that city. And so he who was loved, though unseen, at last will be seen and loved with a perfection and joy that far surpasses that which can ever be experienced here on earth. Well, I've just given you a summary of this great work by Augustine. And from this brief summary, I trust you have a little bit of appreciation for the grand conception, the grand idea that Augustine had of this biblical theme. Now, in the next few minutes... And we're not going to turn to different passages because there's so many in different points. What I want to do is give you a sketch of some of the features of the city of God. And I'm not giving you a detailed painting, just a sketch. Notice with me, for one thing, its inhabitants. This city is built by Christ supremely for a habitation of God. The church is the habitation of God. The most important inhabitant of that city is God. The Lord dwells in Zion. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle. We read in Psalm 9 and Psalm 76. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place, he says, forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it, Psalm 132. And gathered around the king in this city are all those who love and rejoice in him. He is their chief joy. And though despised by men, these inhabitants are extremely privileged to be numbered as inhabitants of this city. And so it is written, of Zion it will be said, this one and that one was born in her. The Lord will record when he registers the people. This one was born there. Psalm 87. And in its present condition, this city, it also has some people in it that don't have a right to be there. False professors that bring reproach upon the church. But there's coming a day when these ones will be banished from the city forever. There shall be no Canaanite in the house or the city of God, Zechariah prophesies. But apart from these ones that are, that are not rightful inhabitants, its inhabitants are exceedingly special. And so as we gather together for worship, we gather with the whole host in heaven and earth that make up this heavenly Jerusalem, this heavenly city. Hebrews 12 tells us, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. These are the inhabitants of this city.
And now notice also its security. For the time being, this city is often besieged by Satan, by wicked men, by false teachers, by the lust of the flesh. It's hated. It's fought against. But none of the enemies of this this city will ever prevail against her. They will never be able to destroy this city. Jerusalem of old was destroyed, but not this city. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever, Psalm 125 tells us. This city, it's built securely on a rock. And being so built, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, Jesus says in Matthew 16. Its walls are impregnable. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for her walls and bulwarks, Isaiah 26, 1. It's surrounded continually also by the providence of God. And better yet, our God himself is a wall of fire around her, Zechariah tells us. This city is surrounded by an omnipotent, omniscient God. This is its security. And notice, too, its elevation. In ancient times, it was considered a special advantage for a city to be built on a hill or upon a mountain. And this was good for its protection because any invading armies would have to be climbing up the hill to be able to get to that city. They'd be easy targets. But it was also something that was desired for, for, because it, was, it, it rendered that city prominent. It could be seen from far off. And the city of God is famous on this account, its elevation. Beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king, Psalm 48. And of course, this was a first, first said about the earthly Jerusalem, but it's a picture you see of the elevation of the true city of God. Jesus said to his disciples, the first members of the new covenant form of the church, you are a city that is set on a hill. Matthew 5, 14. And as such, if we are to live up to the high honor of what we are as the city of God set upon a hill, as bright lights in a dark world, we need to shine so that men will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. This city is exalted. It has an elevation that is magnificent. And then notice with me also its construction. This is not a crumbling, decaying, dying city. A city that as soon as a little earthquake comes along, everything starts falling apart. This city is continually being built up with fresh, new, living stones, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.5. And furthermore, the quality of the workmanship that goes into building this city, it's first rate. You know, when you want to hire somebody to do a remodeling project on your house, you, you, you go to Angie's List or Home Advisor. And you read all the reviews because you, you want quality workmanship. You, you're not interested necessarily in getting just the cheapest thing because it might not be quality. And so the construction of this city, it is, it is of first-rate quality. You and I are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building fitted together. All the stones are perfectly fitted together and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. Psalm 122.3. Notice with me also its government. Its laws, its institutions are the most perfect ever devised. They're found in the infallible word of God. The great charter, the great statute book of the church. This is a perfect government. It is the most perfect government, furthermore, because it has a perfect king. And this king rules continually in this city. Now, we tend to think in America of representative government as the best form of government. But that's only because of the sinfulness of the human heart. Representative government is preferred among us because of its accountability to voters. And if they get tyrannical, then they can get voted out. And this is something of a restraint on those that govern. And that's why we prefer, given the fallen state of humanity, a representative form of government. But voters are sinners. 
And they're easily manipulated by lies and carnal motives and by deceitful politicians. And when we see wicked men get elected who pander to the sinful desires and who pledge to take positions that are contrary to the, the word of God, we get discouraged as God's people when we see this happening. But we need to take heart, dear people. The city that really matters most to us is not this earthly city. The city that matters most to us is perfectly righteous. It has a just and a merciful king. And even those who are inferior magistrates in this city, namely the pastors of the church, they are accountable to the king. It's really the king, you see, that rules in his city. And then notice also with me, it's life. In ancient times, men usually built cities either near a harbor or near a river. A water source is exceedingly important for the life of a city. And also having a harbor or a river, a navigable river, this was helpful by way of commerce so that provisions could be brought in, trade could take place, merchandise could be brought in. And this is what the Holy Spirit is for us. He is a life-giving river who refreshes our souls, who imparts to us precious gifts and graces, who gives to us peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, dear people, that refreshes the city, enriches the city, and cheers the hearts of the inhabitants of the city of God. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the tabernacle of the Most High. We read in Psalm 46, this river, it flows from an inexhaustible fountain. It is said to proceed from the throne of God and the Lamb. Revelation 22. And then notice with me its privileges. In ancient cities, there were certain privileges and certain immunities that belonged to the citizens of a particular city. And the Church of God, it has many glorious privileges that unconverted sinners don't have. We have in this city the pardon of all of our sins, freedom from slavery to sin, access to the king. Spiritual fellowship with other inhabitants of the city, the care of pastors, the ministry of the saints. These and many more privileges are enjoyed by the inhabitants of the city of God. Then finally, notice with me, it's esteem. As an inhabitant of the capital district, one of the things that I enjoy about having a guest preacher from another part of the world or the other, another state is to take them around the city of Albany. Show the guest our Capitol building and how it was built and the remarkable carvings that are there. Other architectural, I think, architectural masterpieces in our city. And in a right sense, I hope, I have a certain pride in this city. I like to show it off, you see, by somebody that visits here. I think of it as being my city. But even much more than this, dear people, the citizens of the great and glorious city that I'm preaching about highly esteem their city. They have a great love for it. They have a great affection for it. And even the Old Testament external manifestation of the city, it was esteemed, it was loved by the saints of old. And so while they were taken away in captivity, they sat down and they wept by the rivers of Babylon, the city of, the, of man. And they said, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Psalm 137, verses 5 and 6. We love this city, the city of God, because we were born there. We were born again in this city. It's the city of our dear God. We love it because of who is there. We love it because we were rescued from the city of man. And we were rescued at the cost of, of, of our dear Savior's blood. We love it because in every way, you see, it's a glorious city. Her foundation is laid with sapphires and precious stones. She's made of the purest gold. It's a glorious church, a glorious city. Someday after it has been perfectly sanctified, perfectly cleansed, our dear Savior will present it as a glorious church, holy, 
without blemish, a perfect city that will endure for all eternity. As we seek to conclude this series, this sermon, I want to give you just a few words by way of practical application. And the first has to do with some words of instruction. And my word of instruction pertains to instruction. You and I need to be instructors. We need to be teachers. And here I'm talking about our children. We need to teach them, you see, our history. We need to teach them the history of the city of God, the history of the city of man, history of our country. In our public schools, more and more our children are being taught to view a view of history that's completely divorced from the idea of providence. Providence has nothing to do with what's happening, you see, in the history of our country. They're taught from the perspective, you see, of the city of man, not the city of God. And in many places, they're being even taught to hate our country. They're only told about the bad things that we did and nothing of the heroes and nothing of the Christian influence or the upright things that really went into the founding of our city. And we're, we're witnessing the fruits of this kind of teaching. They've been rotting our streets, tearing down statues, ripping up our history, despising it. But even when they have a teacher who has a higher view of our early history, they're not being shown the many manifestations of God's providence throughout our history. The idea of providence is everywhere in the reflections of George Washington. I was hoping to kind of sprinkle this application with some more little vignettes and references, but we don't have time. You read the life of Washington, though, it's just peppered, you see, with references to the providence of God. He saw it every day. The idea of providence is everywhere also in the writings of others at that time. And we need to teach our children, you see, the divine part as well as the human part of history. They only get the human part, and usually in a very distorted fashion, in our public schools. We need to teach them the relationship between national obedience and divine blessing, the relationship between national disobedience and divine chastening. It's also important that we teach our children the difference between the city of God and the city of man. They need to see that the city of God is not equivalent to America. America is not equal, doesn't, isn't equal to the city of God. That's important for them to see. It's important that we teach the, the, the ways in which our country was blessed from the beginning with the Christian heritage. And that's an important aspect that we need to teach them. But it's a mistake, I think, to say without qualification that our country has always been a Christian nation. Right from the very beginning, there were many, like Thomas Jefferson, who were more governed by atheistic and, and deistic ideas of the French Enlightenment more than Christianity. And if we teach them that our country is a Christian nation, and always has been, then when they're exposed and they discover some of the truths of what happened in the past, horrible things did take place, they'll become disillusioned. And, and why? It's because we're, we're conveying the idea that this was the city of God, you see. But on the other hand, we need to tell them, you see, how much our country has been blessed. It has been blessed with the influence of the gospel. The influence of the city of God has been immense in the beginning days of our, of our country. And in that sense, America is an exceptional country. And teaching exceptionalism in this, right, in this way is the right thing. But we need to teach them how far we have fallen. And how this has taken place because of the way our country increasingly has rejected the word of God. But then I also want to close with a word of encouragement. And during these days of national upheaval, it's really easy to get discouraged. It's exceedingly discouraging when we see our fellow countrymen vote for people that want to expand access to abortion, take it right up to the end of nine months. It's discouraging to see those that want to restrict our speech by the latest standards of wokeness and to cancel people that don't fulfill those standards. And increasingly, big tech is censuring viewpoints it doesn't approve of. And this is very alarming, this development. It's hard to get elected with a certain platform, you see, because you can't get the word out anymore. 
In Scotland, there's a bill right now that proposes family members to turn in their own fellow family members for saying things in their own, heart, in their own homes that will not be viewed or considered hate speech. This is totalitarianism, dear people. Reporting each other and being little enemies against each other. It's almost like North Korea, you see. The ideas that are being uh, spawned upon the Western countries now. This kind of totalitarianism, this is not far off from our country. And these, th these, get, these things really get us down. But dear people, this shouldn't surprise us when we see the city of man behaving this way. It shouldn't really get us down, you see. This is just the city of man. The city of man has always been opposed to the city of God. And this begins right for the very first two people that were born into this world. So let's therefore take encouragement from the fact that we are part of a different city, the city of God. And let's remember that its inhabitants, especially God, let's remember its security, its elevation, its construction, its government, its life, its privileges, and its esteem. But then thirdly, we also have in this, this subject a word of warning. I imagine and I suppose that sitting in this very room are some people that are still members of the city of man. You're not part of the city of God. And I want to remind you that Babylon the Great shall fall. And when it does, all the earth shall wail in grief, you included. Sinners rejoice, they celebrate when, when those that embrace their anti-Christian views are voted into office. They celebrate that. They rejoice in that. They rejoice in, in, in wicked bills being passed. Lighting up, you see, remember, the Freedom Tower when this bill was passed a while ago uh, on abortion. Revelation 18.19 warns us of the day in which all the inhabitants of Babylon, the city of man, will throw dust on their heads and they will cry out, weeping and wailing, and they will be saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she is made desolate. There is a warning. The city of man will perish, you included, if you continue to be an enemy of the city of God and you continue to side with the city of man. But then finally, I believe in this subject that we've been studying, we have a word that encourages us by way of patience. And what I want to do is read in conclusion from the book of Revelation, from Revelation chapter 21. Perhaps you could turn with me to that passage, Revelation 21. We don't have time to expound give details on what I'm going to read. So pay very close attention as I read. Revelation 21, beginning with verse 10. And this is about the final state of the city of God. And he carried me, Revelation 21:10. and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. You see the elevation of the city. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, Descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates. And names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Verse 14, now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Verse 22, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illumined it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. The kings of earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. And then in the next chapter, he describes the river, the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, 22-2, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throat of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be upon their foreheads. I invite you now to take your hymnals and turn with me to hymn number 604 as we sing in conclusion concerning this wonderful city. 604. Gracious and blessed God, we do thank you and praise you that you've taken us, who at one time were members of the city of man, at one time were on the side of evil, against your kingdom, against your city. We were among those that hated you and hated your ways, and yet you changed us. By your spirit, you saved us. By the blood of Jesus, you forgave us made us to be members of this glorious city that will last forever. And we pray that as we go through the difficult days in which we are in as a church and as a nation, we plead with you, O Father, that you would help us to have eyes of faith to see your ultimate purpose, the ultimate redemption that awaits us, the ultimate glory of the city of which we are now a part. We plead with you, Lord, that you would be pleased to have mercy upon this land, that you would bring it back to more fidelity to Scripture, somewhat like, at least, what it had in days gone by. We long, O Lord, that the gospel would be proclaimed from shore to shore, and we would be among those that would be faithful to the Scriptures and evaluate everything that we do by fidelity to the Word of God. O Lord our God, we do pray that these principles that we've studied in your Word would help us through these days. We pray that you would help us to pass on these things to our children. Help us to teach them of the blessings of our country. 
What a wonderful privilege they have of living in this country. And yet help us to teach them that ultimately it's not this country that is heaven. It's not this country that's the city. But it is that city that's described in your word that we all aspire to and in which you have made a member, which you made many of us to be members. And we pray, O oh Lord, that more and more our hearts would be affected by it, we would love it, we would promote it, we would give our lives to the advancement and the glory of this city. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Mm-hmm.